Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. On June 19, 1988, Vincent Wright and his girlfriend, Anicia Johnson, were parked outside a one stop convenience store in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. While Anicia waited in the car, Vincent went behind it to fill the rear tire with air. Suddenly, two armed gunmen approached, demanding money. Vincent said he didn't have any. Just then, Another man pulled up in a brown Oldsmobile and told the two gunmen to take Vincent's car. Anissia jumped out of the car and the two men sped off, followed by the Oldsmobile. Police had no leads and did little to investigate until Vincent's brother gave them the license number of a brown Oldsmobile he'd seen driving around. The car belonged to 22-year-old Sidney Holmes, who soon became the focus of the investigation. But Sidney denied any involvement, claiming to have been over a mile away at the time. After viewing two photo arrays, both of which contained Sidney's picture, as well as a live lineup in which Sidney participated, Vincent identified him as the man in the brown car. It seemed to make sense. Why would one person be shown in repeated lineups if the police didn't think he was guilty? But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Before we even get into introductions with you two gentlemen, I just want to give the listener a little heads up about the insanity that is about to unfold in their headphones. The thing that really gets me most about this case is that the prosecution initially recommended an 825-year sentence. And even without knowing what you were accused of, I just want that to resonate because I can't wrap my head around of what kind of a heinous crime would warrant such a long sentence. 
My name is Lauren Bright Pacheco, and I'm a broadcast journalist and a podcaster of such series as Murder in Oregon, Murder in Illinois, and Murder in Miami. And I am very honored to be sitting in this seat filling in for Jason Flom. But I'm also very honored to be speaking to you, too. Sydney Holmes, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks for having us. And also joining us today is Brandon Sheck, staff attorney with the Innocence Project of Florida. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be here. Sydney, can you just tell me a little bit about your upbringing and your family? Well, I grew up in a household with two parents. I have two sisters. We grew up in a Christian household. We're a very loving family. We're very close. All kind of functions, family functions. We always coming together. Thanksgiving, you know, Christmas, you know, all the holidays. The thing with me, I was always a bookworm. I'm always, you know, a gadget type of guy. You know, I always the intelligent. I always want to be like, the smartest guy in the, in the room. I was always that kind of guy. And, and and Sydney, just take me to who you were at the age of 22, the year that this happened in your life. What were your interests? You know, what were your hopes and plans for the future at that age? Well, age 22, I was working at a hospital in which they was going to send me to school for a surgical technician. So, you know, I feel like my future was bright at that time. I was highly into the medical field. I was highly ambitious, but it didn't happen. And the irony is you had had two prior incidences, run-ins with the law, but you had turned your life around at that point, correct? Yes, ma'am. It was a robbery case that at the same instant, I was taking a, a co-worker home, and he went inside and uh, committed some crimes without my knowledge, and I was charged with the crime as well. But as I understand it, you did plead guilty in that case, even though you say you had no idea the robbery was going on. Were you offered some kind of plea deal, or were you told that if you pled guilty, it would make things easier? Yes, that was the case. So when all of this went down, you were seen as a previous prior offender? Yes, ma'am. All right. And so, Brandon, can you just take me to the time and the place that we're talking about? This happened in Fort Lauderdale, but give me an idea of what the scene was in 1988 when the crime occurred, just in terms of the relationship between the police and the public. Well, you know, Broward County, Florida has a history, and it's a well-documented history. At that time in Fort Lauderdale, there were a lot of these types of armed robberies. And actually, the arrest rate where where police made arrests in those cases was quite low. It was 20 to 25 percent. Um, so there are a large number of these types of crimes happening and, you know, not enough police. Um, a lot of cases had not a lot to go on. And, and so there are a lot of these unsolved cases. And so in those cases, you know, we see shortcuts being taken. And definitely we see shortcuts being taken here in Sydney's case. And those shortcuts definitely directly led to his wrongful conviction. And probably contributed significantly to the fact that Broward County doesn't have a great track record when it comes to wrongful convictions. In fact, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, Broward County leads the way in Florida with 13 out of 91 wrongful convictions. That's correct. There's definitely a long history. And of course, that history affected a lot of folks. Um, And, you know, there's ongoing work 
you know, still with our organization, with the state attorney's office to try to assist individuals that we can identify that were affected by that history. And Sydney here, in this case, was definitely one of those folks. I think it's also important to note that a lot of those wrongful convictions occurred under the watch of Florida's longest serving state attorney, Mike Satz. I believe Satz was in office for almost 50 years. Yeah, that's correct. And you know, to Mr. Satz's credit, you know, one of the things that he did on the way out was establish this conviction review unit. And that has continued the review unit with great support by the current state attorney, Mr. Harold Pryor. But yes, it's quite unusual, especially in such a large jurisdiction as the 17th Circuit, Broward County, to have someone with that amount of power for that long. Okay, so now let's talk about the crime. This occurred on June 19th, 1988, Father's Day. The two victims, Vincent Wright and his girlfriend, Anicia Johnson, were outside of a convenience store gas station. Anicia was sitting in the car, and Vincent was putting air in the tires. Yeah, so there were, there were two perpetrators that were armed that came up to them and demanded money, demanded possessions. The victims didn't have anything to give them. I think the perpetrators were kind of frustrated by that. And you know, simultaneous to that, a third person uh, driving a brown Oldsmobile kind of came up onto the scene as it's unfolding and told the two armed perpetrators, hey, you know, just take their car. And so the two armed perpetrators stole the victim's car and drove off on the scene. And that third individual got back into the brown Oldsmobile and also drove off from the scene. And where were you, Sydney, at 6.30 p.m. that night when the crime occurred? I was celebrating Father's Day with my, my father, friends, neighbors. We were riding up and down the street on a go-kart. So for the whole day, I was at my parents' house celebrating Father's Day. And multiple people yeah. were able to confirm that. Yes, it, multiple people confirmed my whereabouts the whole day. So... After the three perpetrators sped off, Anicia called the police. And when the detective showed up, she told him what had happened and described the first two men. She wasn't able to describe the man in the brown car. At this point, Vincent had already set out with a friend to try to chase the stolen car down themselves. But Brandon, they didn't have any success, did they? No. So the perpetrators with the stolen car had about a five-minute head start. Police actually found the stolen vehicle the next morning and returned it back to Vincent. But essentially, police didn't have any leads. They didn't do much of the, any of their own investigation over the next few days. But meanwhile, Vincent had gone home that night of the crime and had told his brother Milton what had happened. Interestingly enough, Milton told Vincent that earlier that same day, a group of four people who were also in a brown Oldsmobile stopped his car in a street, uh, attempting to carjack him and were actually shooting at him. And Milton believed that that same group of folks that tried to carjack him uh, were the same people that tried to or that did rob Vincent and Anicia earlier that same day. And so Milton decided to take the investigation into his own hands. Over the next few days, you know, he kind of kept an eye out 
while he was driving, you know, the streets of Fort Lauderdale to see if he spotted any brown Oldsmobiles. He's he's basically playing citizen detective. That's right. And so he saw one brown Oldsmobile, wrote down that license plate, sent it to the police. Police ran it through their system and came back and told the Wright brothers, no, actually, that's the wrong car. Of course, they're looking for you know, three young black male perpetrators. And I can only imagine that whatever car that brown Oldsmobile that Milton saw was registered to was probably not a young black man. And so police said, no, that's not a match. But Milton continued to drive around over the next few days and at one point was driving behind Sydney's car, which was a brown Oldsmobile. So he gave that no- license number to the police. Police saw that it was registered to Sydney, who, of course, is a young black man. And Sydney also had these prior convictions for armed robbery. And at that point, it's kind of like, bingo, here's the guy that we're looking for. And from that point forward, I would describe police's investigation as tunnel vision, essentially. That's pretty incredible when you think of it. I mean, what, what are the chances of Sydney having the same car as the perpetrators? So that's interesting that you mentioned that because in our post-conviction investigation, we consulted with a historian at an Oldsmobile Museum in Michigan who told us, you know, you're not going to believe this, but that car and that precise color were the most common car and the most common color of the most common car out on the streets in the United States at that period of time. And so I can only presume that there were hundreds, if not thousands of these, you know, very type of brown Oldsmobile driving around the very busy streets of Fort Lauderdale, Florida at that time. The reality is, is that if Milton had been driving behind another brown Oldsmobile registered to a young black man, then that person might have been wrongfully convicted in this case. But even by his own description, you know, Sydney's car didn't match because what he described was a similar looking car, but had a blown out circle where the lock would have been. That's right. Milton is definitely the driving force of this investigation. But, you know, there were many inconsistencies between the car involved in the one-stop robbery, the car involved in the attempted carjacking of Milton, and Sydney's car. And so one of the most significant inconsistencies is that the car involved in the one-stop crime and the armed robbery of Milton was described as having a hole in the trunk, kind of where the lock would be. It's possible that that was a stolen car, and so the lock was popped out. But Sydney's car didn't have that. Sydney's car, the lock in the back was completely intact. There was otherwise no hole in the trunk, and the state never provided any evidence to suggest that that was ever the case with Sydney's car. And so obviously that's a very glaring inconsistency between Sydney's car and the perpetrator's car. It just didn't match up. And then of course the physical description of the perpetrator didn't match up with Sydney either. Yes. Let's talk about their physical characteristics. What was the description given of the man in the brown car? So in his First deposition. Vincent said the perpetrator was five foot six. Vincent said that he himself was five foot eight and the perpetrator was shorter than he was. 
Uh, he described him as 170 pounds, kind of heavy set. He described him as a little bit overweight, and that was not Sydney at the time of the crime. Sydney, just describe to me then what your height and weight was at the at the time of the crime when you were 22. I was six feet, 183 pounds. So you were a tall, skinny guy. Yeah, six six feet, about 183. Got it. The lead investigator in this case was Detective Robert Campbell, and it does seem like he was focused on you as the only suspect, despite the fact that the driver of the Oldsmobile was not even one of the armed robbers. Sydney, when did you even get an inkling that the police were setting their sights specifically on you? Well, my car at the time was registered. The address I was using at that time was my grandmother's resident. And when they when they got the tag number, ran the number to that address, they came into the house and left a business card saying that I need to contact them, these two detectives, which I did because I have nothing behind. I haven't done anything, so I called them. And they came by, questioned me, and asked to take a photograph. To my wreck, I didn't think anything was to that. I gave them a photograph. And that was that. That was the first time. The next time I seen them, I was being arrested for armed robbery. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Initially, the victims were shown what we would call a mug book, which is essentially just a large book of photographs of people who had previously been arrested for similar crimes. And neither of the victims made an identification from the mug book. Um, several days later, 
Sydney's license plate number was given to the police, and that is the impetus for him becoming a suspect in this case. And so the police created a six-pack, a photo lineup of six photos, including Sydney's, using his booking photo from his prior arrest, from his prior conviction in 1984, which would have been four years before this crime occurred. Um, and neither of the victims identified Sydney from that lineup. But then, of course, the photo that Sydney just talked about, the one he freely agreed to give the police, came into play. Exactly. And so as Sydney explained, you know, police came to talk to him and he told them, you know, I didn't do this. I have nothing to hide. Yes, of course. Please take a photograph of me, you know, expecting that that photograph is going to help eliminate him as a suspect um, because he knew that he didn't commit this crime. And so a second photo lineup was created using that new photograph of Sydney that he agreed to take. And five different people than from the filler photos in the first lineup. Um, and so Sydney is the only person that was shown to the victims multiple times. And it should be noted that Detective Campbell was the one who administered every one of those lineups. The female victim, she did not identify Sydney. She never made an identification in the case. Vincent, the male victim, he identified Sydney in the second lineup. And that's the principal evidence used to convict him. And Sydney, you know, you were quite willing to assist the detectives in their initial investigation. And turns out there wasn't much of an investigation because you were arrested on October 6th of 1988. That morning of October the 6th, I was sitting at my parents' house, actually talking to my father, having breakfast at the kitchen table. Then, you know, two to, uh, the same two detectives came knocking at the front door, say they had a warrant for my arrest, an armed robbery that took place at this at gas station. I'm looking at them saying, armed robbery? I haven't robbed anyone. So, you know, being the humble God I am, you know, the humble spirit, okay, I complied with law enforcement, and I was arrested. You know, I can't even put in the words what went to my head. I'm saying, why is I being handcuffed? Why is I being charged with something I haven't done? I'm 22. Why, you know, what did I do? I was speechless. Go to the county kind of jail. I'm in awe, trying to figure it, you know. But like I say, you know, the resilient person I am, I stay humble through the process, you know, praying that, you know, we got a lawyer and hoping that the true facts will come out. Apparently it didn't. So... A little over six months later, on April 24th, 1989, your trial began. Your defense attorney was Mitchell Pole, and the prosecutor was Peter Magrino. So, Brandon, what did the prosecution present? So, essentially, it's the identification of Sydney by one of the two victims. Um, and again, that's only after the second lineup that, that he was in plus whatever stock you want to put into his car being similar, although significantly different than that of the perpetrator's car that, that he was driving at the crime scene. I think it's also really important to note that Milton was critical to the investigation, the citizen's investigation that we described, yeah, but he was never called to testify at Mr. Holmes's trial. So the jury never heard his perspective and precisely what he did, and what he saw during his own investigation. And that information is critical because it's the exact reason why 
Sydney became a suspect in the first place. And without that citizen investigation, without what Milton did, Sydney would never have been a suspect in this case. So the jury never heard that, you know, Milton is looking for what happens to be the most common car in the United States at that time. And you're just kind of going about his day, keeping an eye out, looking for that car. And the jury never heard from him. And the only thing that puts Sydney in the crosshairs here is that he has, you know, that type of car and he's a young black man with the prior armed robbery convictions. And so, again, that kind of totality of the factors just leads police into tunnel vision that he must have been the person who committed this crime. I'd also want to know that this identification was the result of planting Sidney's image in Vincent's mind in the first photo array, in which he was not identified, followed by an identification in the second after the seed had been planted. Nevertheless, that was the state's case. So what did the defense present? So the defense's case was that this was a misidentification, that essentially the state got the wrong guy. And to bolster that misidentification defense, the defense presented several alibi witnesses that, like Sidney said, he was at this Father's Day cookout. And because he was there, he could not have committed this crime at the one stop. And so essentially what it boils down to is you have on the state side, the one identification from Vincent. Again, that happened only after the second time that he was shown a photo of Sydney. And on the defense's side, you have, I believe, four alibi witnesses who came into court and testified that Sydney was at the Father's Day cookout at his parents' house and therefore could not have committed this crime. And so, you know, the jury chose the state's evidence, the victim's identification in court over the alibi witnesses who said that Sydney couldn't have possibly been at the crime scene. Sydney, can you just take me to what it was like to sit inside that courtroom? Well, you know, it was agony. You know, I thought sure that uh, I was going to be going home that day because of lack of evidence, you know, and the alibi witness and all my alibi people's uh, stand on the stand and told, uh, told the jury where my whereabouts. But when they deliberated and, you know, uh, came by with a guilty verdict, you know, I was convicted and given a 400-year sentence at age of 22. I was just devastated, you know, what, you know, wow, you know. And then I have a six-month-old child. I had a daughter that was six months, so all that was taken away, so I seen none of her childhood. She was two days from being seven months old when I got arrested. I've been in prison for 34 years. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. My life was just, you know, just a snap of an eye. It was gone for something I haven't done. So how, how can I feel? I feel empty. I, I was I was devastated, you know. So... I don't know, it was just, it was just a, a day that I would never forget, but it's a day I just want to move on from. So Sydney was not ever accused of being one of the guys involved in an armed robbery. He's accused of being a guy who drives by and says, hey, you should take that car and then drives away. And based on that, prosecution recommends 825 years, and he gets sentenced to 400. Yeah, that's correct. 400 was a compromise. The prosecutor asked for 825 years. The defense attorney came back and said, well, 40 years would be a sufficient uh, sentence. That would be an effective life term. And the judge said, well, perhaps 825 is too many years. I can only presume that he landed on 400 because it's somewhere in the middle of 40 and 825. And that's the sentence that Sydney got, 400 years. And so I think a lot of people are thinking, well, why 400? Why 825? These are just kind of arbitrary numbers. But really what it boils down to is at that time in Florida, a life sentence would have made Sydney eligible for parole after 25 years. A term of year sentence, a 400-year sentence, would mean that he would have to serve out that number of years, and he was not eligible for parole. I know Sydney has said this multiple times, but only God can serve 400 years, right? No man can serve 400 years. So essentially, that's the workaround to make Sydney not eligible for parole. He would never get out of prison. Did they ever... Before it even got to court, did they ever offer you some kind of a deal if you could give them the names of the two armed assailants? They offered a deal, but why would I take a deal for something I haven't done? No, I'm not taking a deal because I haven't did anything. I'm an innocent man. 
And how can you name two people you have no idea? I, I don't know who, who they are. If I can just elaborate on that, at, at Sydney's sentencing after he was convicted, the prosecutor said to the judge at sentencing, and I'm looking at the quote right now, I would point out that this defendant was given the opportunity to carry the keys to the prison in his back pocket because of the factual circumstances surrounding the robbery. And what he's referring to is precisely, Lauren, what you just said, is that Sidney was given an opportunity to take a plea, to plea to a crime that he did not commit in exchange for giving up the two other perpetrators. And of course, if you didn't commit a crime, how could you possibly know who those other two perpetrators were? He maintained his innocence throughout, and therefore he got punished when it came to sentencing with this very harsh sentence. Sydney, you were in prison for 34 years. Can you just take me to what your day-to-day was like? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in law library trying to research, trying to find, you know, a way to become free, you know, get this charge off me, something I didn't do. But in the meantime, outside of that, I educated myself. I read a lot. I love to read. I educated myself computer skills. I got a social degree in theology. I learned culinary art skills. I learned counseling skills, drug abuse skills. Day to day, I just kept myself busy, reading a lot, studying a lot, always, you know, Bible, you know, scriptures. I did a lot just to keep myself afloat. Giving up wasn't an option. And my parents and uh, my family members, they they weren't going to allow me to ever give up. You know, know, the faith that we have, I was always going to fight until I stopped breathing. And... Unfortunately, it was a long fight, decades long. You filed appeals for post-conviction relief several times, and all were denied. What was the turning point? Well, 2017, I was blessed to write an application to the Innocent Project of Florida. And, you know, they have, they have a screening process. You know, they have a lot of cases they have to go through. I also applied to the CRU, and then between them, and they collaborated with each other. And that was the Broward County Conviction Review Unit, headed up by Assistant State Attorney Ariel Demby Berger. Brandon, when you started working with the CRU on Sydney's case, what stood out to you? What were the biggest red flags? In Sydney's case, I, unfortunately, just like one read of the trial transcripts, they aren't very long. And there were all these holes, these things that didn't make sense. It's like, how did this person even become a suspect in the first place? It's not until you really dig into the police reports and the depositions and the the discovery that's kind of behind the scenes that the jury isn't always privy to. When you get down to the bottom of the facts in Sydney's case, the facts overwhelmingly speak of discrepancies rather than corroboration of guilt. And so when you see the specific facts in Sydney's case and how they just don't line up, right? Nothing added up. And that's not even taking into consideration Sydney's alibi. This crime happened on Father's Day and he was at a Father's Day gathering that had many, many people that corroborated that either through trial testimony and or deposition testimony. No physical evidence, no other corroborating witness identifications. All that the state had in this case was one eyewitness identification. And as we talked about earlier, that eyewitness identification was obviously tainted. What did you learn when you dug deeper into that process? We had 
two separate eyewitness identification experts analyze everything relevant to Sydney's identification. And they both identified double-digit issues pertaining to the identification, both the victim's ability to perceive the event at the convenience store, but then also the way that the lineup was composed and administered by the police. Um, They came back with very similar reports, citing very similar issues that have contributed to hundreds and hundreds of people being exonerated based on eyewitness identification evidence across the country. There was no identification of Sydney made by either of the victims in the first lineup. And so what's problematic in the second lineup where Sydney was identified by one of the two victims is that Sydney was the only person that's in both lineups. Because of the way that the lineup is composed, this one photo vis-a-vis the other five sticks out to them. And so it could be an indicator to them that police are signaling and drawing their attention into that photo. And in this case, that photo was Sydney's photo. I thought it was really interesting, too, the during the reinvestigation that you interviewed Vincent Wright and Anissia Johnson, who were the original victims of this crime. I think Ms. Johnson and Mr. Ray were very forthcoming in the information that they provided to us. They were quite honestly astonished that Sidney, irrespective of whether he committed the crime, that he was still in prison for this. And we appreciated their willingness to speak to us and provide that kind of context to us to understand from their perspective what happened. So on March 9th, 2023, the Innocence Project of Florida and the Conviction Review Unit presented all of their findings and filed a motion for post-conviction relief. And then, Sydney, while you were waiting for your hearing to come up, you get some really great news from television, of all places. Yeah, what happened was that by 11.30, they came and told me the judge wanted to see me. So I'm kind of baffled. Why would I just want to see me? I know the hearings on Thursday, but they took me downstairs to see the judge. But then they said 1130 was too early because the hearing was set for two o'clock. So they took me back to the cell and I went and laid down on the bed. Then I heard the guy shout, hey, I think I see your picture on TV. So I'm saying, why is my picture on TV? Why? You know, I didn't even see it. When I came out, it wasn't there. So I called my sister. Then when I called my sister, I asked, what is going on? Uh, then she just bust out crying on the phone. Then I went right to I was in court and at two o'clock to be released. And so on March 13th, 2023, you walked out of prison a free man. What did that feel like? Well, I don't know. I can't even know what to say. I was in tears. You know, um, it, it was a it, it was kind of bittersweet because, you know, my father wasn't there. You know, he died four years ago. So other than that, that was the only bittersweet part about, you know, being released that he wasn't there to see this happen. You know, I'm still reeling. You know, it's only been 35 days I've been home. So I'm still trying to grab to, you know, it's still unbelievable that I, I am free after 34 years. Brandon, as Sidney told us, he'd been working on his appeals for a long time without success before connecting with you and the CRU. What do you think was the magic ingredient this third time around? Well, the magic ingredient, ironically, is the current state of the state attorney's office in Broward County. You have 
Arielle Demi Berger and her staff at the Conviction Review Unit. And you have the elected state attorney, Harold Pryor, who are truly seeking justice. I think that that is the difference. They, they have an open mind and they follow the evidence. And that's what they did in Sydney's case. What's next for you, Sydney? What are, what are your hopes and plans for the future? Well, you know, I'm still working through things. I always want, like, I have culinary skills and the food truck is imminent that I, you know, preferably one day that might happen. But, you know, like I say, take capital, take finance, you know, it's it's a process. So um, whatever, uh, I just have to keep praying wherever what opportunity comes, just take it. And Brandon, I understand that under Florida law, Sydney is unfortunately not even eligible for compensation from the state because he had those prior convictions we talked about in the beginning of this episode. That's what the state statute says is called the clean hands provision as it sits now. Essentially says that if you have a prior felony conviction, you're not eligible for compensation in a subsequent wrongful conviction, no matter how much time or whatever the circumstances are for that wrongful conviction. You know, the data says that if you have a prior conviction of any kind, you're 50% more likely to subsequently be convicted for a crime that you didn't commit in a later case. There's a bill pending in the Florida legislature right now that would eradicate that requirement, if you will. And the Innocence Project of Florida is working to fix that, to make people like Sydney, who have prior convictions, eligible for compensation for their wrongful conviction cases. Well, I understand that the IPF has started a GoFundMe page for Sydney. We'll have a link to that on our bio page for our listeners who'd like to help Sydney get a new start. Who knows, maybe start up capital for that food truck. And now at the end of every podcast, we have what's called closing arguments. Just your final thoughts, whatever you'd like to say to listeners. Brandon, why don't you start and then we'll go to Sydney to close things out. Wrongful convictions absolutely happen. It takes a lot of diligence to overturn them. It takes a lot of seeking the truth, seeking facts. And in Sydney's case, it was clear from the very beginning that he was innocent, what he told everyone all along. And the system got it wrong 34 years ago. And there's no amount of effort, no amount of money that can get him that time back with his family with his daughter, with his mother and father and sister. But the state attorney's office in this case ultimately did the right thing. They ultimately pursued justice. They themselves sought the facts and the truth. And with a lot of diligence and hard work, they saw that Sydney was in fact telling the truth all along that he was innocent. And I really do commend the work that state attorney's offices are doing across the country to realize when they got things wrong in the past, to take accountability for that, and to do whatever it takes to rectify the situation so that people like Sydney can come home to their families and live the rest of their life in freedom. Well, like I say, I, I can't say it enough that uh, fantastic job. Like I say, the, say the, you know, the new current state attorney, his entire staff, Ms. Berger, and also Brandon, Jeff Miller, and the whole staff of the Innocent Project. But my close statement is that throughout this process, I will always tell a person, you can never give up hope. It's always the chance. It's always a slim hope or chance of anything in life that we do. It, it was a hard fault. I was 22. But I'm not mad with the justice system. I can't be mad because, you know, um, 
that's something that's needed in our country. You know, it, it's if it wasn't with justice system, but I think it's broken. But I think we're on the right track. That that uh, we got prosecutors throughout the country and uh, justices throughout the country that they're trying to make changes. Other states, you got organizations like uh, Innocent Project. Is, you know, they're doing a lot of hard work to try to uh, rectify some of these things that's going on in our great state of Florida. It's so much that need to be done. But like I say, uh, I'm just so grateful that I had the opportunity to be free. It was a, it was a long road. My thing now is to help the, the help people to overcome the things that I went through and I hope I can be some kind of light and not only for them for the youth as well because it's needed in our country Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction I'm your guest host Lauren Bright Pacheco I'd like to thank executive producers Jason Flom and Kevin Wardus for inviting me to be here Special thanks also to our wonderful production team Connor Hall Annie Chelsea Lila Robinson and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production comes from three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. Be online at Lauren Bright Pacheco, and you can find my podcasts, Murder in Oregon, Murder in Illinois, and my latest, Murder in Miami, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.